From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm your host, Megan Liebsch. Right now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, it is probably, somehow, the result of a policy decision. Whether you're running on city-maintained sidewalks, riding public transportation, picking up your kids from school, or washing your dishes with municipal water, these resources are provided through legislation and funding, whether by your local officials or the federal government. Like many American families, my family has a no-politics rule for big family gatherings. As you can imagine, I chafe under this rule, reminding people that being alive is in fact a political act. As you can also imagine, I tend to get a lot of eye rolls. With midterm elections just a week away, I know a lot of people in the U.S. might be wanting a break from politics, a break from excessive political ads and tense discussions with loved ones. But as Pope Francis says, good Catholics meddle in politics. In fact, political engagement can be a positive manifestation of our faith, a way to promote the common good for all people. And that work doesn't stop with Election Day. It's a year-long job. So in this special Election Week episode, I spoke with professional full-time advocate and colleague Thomas Malloy. Tom is the Government Relations Director for the Jesuit Office of Justice and Ecology, or OJE as we call it. OJE is the advocacy arm of the Jesuits, and through Tom, we advocate with the federal government on various social and environmental justice issues. On this episode, we talk about why the Jesuits are involved in federal advocacy, what regular citizens can teach Congress, and how faithful citizenship extends beyond Election Day. I hope you enjoy. Tomaloy, thank you so much for being here today. Hey, Meg. It's uh, great to be with you. Thanks so much for the invitation to have this conversation. Yeah, I didn't give you much choice, did I? So. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, I want to get started uh, with a little bit about you and your background. Um, so I just learned this recently that you, you know, studied English and, and Spanish in college. So what brought you to government relations and, and political work? I did. Yeah. I graduated from John Carroll with uh, my undergraduate in uh, English and Spanish. So I am Jesuit educated. Um, but when I got to John Carroll's campus my senior year, I really didn't know what uh, what was in store for me after graduation. Was I going to stay in Cleveland and try to find a job? Was going to move back home uh, closer to Philadelphia? Um, I, I just didn't know. And somewhere over the course of my first semester, um, and I still to this day, I don't know how, I found out about the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, whether it was a info session, a, a friend, I don't know. Um, but it really just learning about the JVC and the opportunities that were there, um, I, I felt drawn to it. And so I applied and there I was. I found myself not in Cleveland, not in Philadelphia, but in San Diego, California, working in the Sherman Heights Community Center right outside of downtown with the Mexican-American community there. Um, an amazing amazing experience. I highly recommend the JVC to anybody who might be contemplating a year of um, a year of service. 
but after my JV year, I did move back to Cleveland uh, and I became a, a drug and alcohol abuse counselor and case manager for youth in, again, a predominantly Spanish speaking section of Cleveland and, and, and with the with the Puerto Rican community there. And it was through my experiences at with JVC down in San Diego and being a substance abuse counselor and case manager with youth, um, where I really started recognizing that a lot of the challenges that people face, that communities face, are policy failures. They are either policy not working the way it's intended to, or policy that is intended to advantage certain communities and people and disadvantage others. Um, but it was it was broken policy that was um, contributing to poverty, contributing to injustice, contributing to contributing to all of the problems that that communities face. And so I went back to school uh, and I found myself uh, getting a getting a master's in, in social administration, a social work degree. And from there, I went about trying to identify the root causes of the problems that I felt called to, to try to help and to try to fix and, and then and then get at those social problems um, from from the policy perspective rather than at the direct rather than at the direct service level. Yeah, I think that's such an uh, an interesting line that you trace about policy because I this comes up in my family all the time, right? That like we have a big family group chat. Uh, there are like 10, 13 of us on it. Um, and the rule is no politics on the thread or like no politics at like family dinners, right? Um, and I always get so frustrated with that perspective because like you say, and we talked about this last week too, um, like we're surrounded by politics, like everything is a political decision in some way or a result of a policy dis decision. Um, and I think right. that's that's super visible in, you know, communities that have been systemically under-resourced, um, underfunded or, um, you know, marginalized. Um, and I, I think that's such an important thing that we try to keep in perspective in in our work. Um, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you do in government relations for the Jesuits um, and maybe just give us a kind of a definition of, of what is advocacy? What, is, what does that mean at a federal level? So advocacy is supporting a specific policy to government officials at its base. Um, in my specific role, I like to see my job with the Jesuit conference as bringing the experiences and the expertise of the Jesuit ministries and institutions to Congress, to the administration, so that they can use that to make more just policy. Across this country, we have Jesuit ministries doing amazing work. And with that amazing work comes real policy expertise, right? They, they, they see how policy works or how it breaks down at the ground level. And at Jesuit universities, colleges and universities across the country, we have just uh, amazing centers and institutes digging very deeply into 
uh, policy questions. And we want to make sure we want to share that expertise and we want to share all that is those experiences with Congress and with the administration, because that's the type of knowledge that ought to inform policymaking. So something that we also talked about um, last week, which I thought was a really interesting point, you know, we were talking about um, what does advocacy mean and, and what role do, you know, we as um, a faith-based institution and a faith-based network that has all of these connections to social ministries that are doing really important on-the-ground work. Um, you know, what do we offer in in a federal landscape um, and in an advocacy context, in a meeting with a representative? Um, and you said something really interesting about your experience um, because you had had previously worked as a, a legislative aide um, for a foreign, former congressional rep. And you had said that uh, advocacy actually plays a role um, as as educating members in Congress. So I wondered if you could say a little bit more about that um, and what maybe people who are not um, necessarily in politics full time actually can bring to an advocacy context. Yeah. So when we talk about policy and the economy, these are huge topics. And in Congress, every every Congress, every two years, Congress has thousands of bills that it's looking at, thousands of different changes to policy. And members of Congress, members of the House of Representatives, have approximately 760,000 people in their district. Uh, Senators obviously represent a whole state. It is virtually impossible for members of Congress and their staff or senators and their staff to understand the implications of every policy in every person, family, community in their district. And so they rely on us. They rely on their constituents to tell them, hey, you're looking at this policy. This is what X means for me, for my family, for my for my institution, for my community. And this is what we think you should do. There's, there's no way that members of Congress can be uh, experts on every aspect of policy that they're going to contemplate. Uh, and so that's why we bring our concerns and our hopes to them. It's because this is the way we think society should be ordered. This is a just ordering of society. This is a um, equitable ordering of society and our economy. And this is what we think you should do. At my ad- ad- advocacy training, one of, the, one of the students yelled out in the training, yeah, we're, we're their bosses, they work for us. And I thought about that in, as I was reflecting on your, your questions, uh, I thought about that in relation to election day and the ongoing work of building more just and more equitable society is that, yeah, they are like, and so, so to draw out that, that analogy, um, and they are, they're public servants, they work for us. Um, but we all have this image of what the so if we're the bosses, then then we all have the image of what the what what good bosses do, right? They're firm yet compassionate. They're engaged, right? On a regular basis, you you they hold us to account. Yet they help us bring out the best in us. Um, they're mentors. That's what the best bosses are. And so if we're going to be bosses to to our public officials, then then those are the types of ways that we can remain engaged throughout the course of the year. Like, 
help them be be better public servants. That was a great analogy. I love that. So maybe you can break down for us some of the um, policies that the Jesuits and that the Office of Justice and Ecology are specifically are looking at. Well, as as you know, there's there's only a couple months left in 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 the year and in this Congress. Uh, Congress is uh, recessed until Election Day. But after that, there's going to be a mad sprint towards the end of the year where Congress is going to try to do a whole lot in very little time. And so for the Jesuits, that means trying to focus on a for the on a couple of policies that we've been working on over the course of this Congress, over the course of the last couple of years, that we think will really make an impact with families, communities, and that we also think are doable, that we can actually get things done. Because there's a lot, as I said, there's a lot of policy out there, but there's a there's a realm of the possible, especially towards the end of the Congress, that ends up being very small. So you have to really Try to focus your um, focus your efforts and your energies on those things that you think you can provide a unique and distinctive uh, voice and and support for. And so, two of them are the child tax credit and the law enforcement de-escalation training act. The child tax credit, um, as you as you may know, is is a very very successful program at reducing child poverty. Back at the beginning of the pandemic, Congress and the Biden administration passed the American Rescue Plan Act, which included a historic expansion of the child tax credit. More people were going to be getting uh, money and they were going to be getting it on a more regular basis, right? So if you file taxes, you know that Taxes are a, are a once a year thing, right? You you get a check or you give a check to the government around April fifteenth of, of every year. Uh, but the the child tax credit um, modification in the American Rescue Plan Act gave it to families at a monthly clip. So if you had a child, then or children, you were getting a check on a monthly basis, or you were getting a credit into your bank account. Most mostly, um, so those expansions and that uh, modernization drastically reduced child poverty. I mean, to to levels that we haven't seen in this country. Five percent. To add some context to Tom's statistic, the childhood poverty rate was ten percent in 2020. Thanks to the child tax credit, it dropped by half to five percent, according to data from the U.S. Census Bureau. Unfortunately. Uh, those, um, some of those policies have since been rolled back. They expired. And as a result, we're already hearing about increases in, in hardship, increases in the inability to afford basic uh, necessities, um, increased uh, rent, in, rent instability and housing instability. And so uh, we want to make sure that those families with children that are having trouble making ends meet can get that support that they need. Um, and I would also add this. We, you know, we, we think of the child tax credit, it's income into the family's bank account. Um, and I think what doesn't get talked about as much are the vast additional benefits to children when their families are financially secure. So when parents 
have enough money to pay the rent, to put food on the table, to get their kids to where they need to be, those children see increased educational outcomes, increased physical and mental health outcomes. They Research shows that they have they have um, increased earnings potential later in life. So the, the, the security that children experience now as a result of the child tax credit pays off decades down the line. Um, so the benefits of the child tax credit and making sure that it gets to as many children and families as possible is really clear. And the second one is the Law Enforcement De-Escalation Training Act. As we all know, law enforcement throughout the country every day, they get calls for people in emotional or mental distress, people who are under the influence of substance abuse or, um, or alcohol. And those first responders aren't always equipped to deal with those types of circumstances. They are law enforcement. Um, and while law enforcement has a proper role, in society, so does crisis intervention. So does substance abuse treatment. Um, as I as I mentioned, I'm a former drug and alcohol abuse case manager, um, so I do have some insight into into this issue. So we want law enforcement to be well equipped or educated about the other resources that are available in the community to people in emotional distress, uh, to people who are under the influence of substance abuse or other drugs, so that we don't end up incarcerating or arresting people who need a different intervention, who need um, mental health counseling, who need detox, who, who need um, substance abuse treatment, um, and counseling, um, or somebody who just needs to just needs to find a safe space. That's what the Law Enforcement De-Escalation Training Act would do. It would give the training to lo local law enforcement officials so that they have a knowledge of and access to the resources in the community to deal with situations that don't necessarily need a law enforcement first response. And I think these are two really interesting policies because they sit at two kind of ends of, of a spectrum of, of um, outcomes that OJE, um, that our office tries to look at when we're thinking about policies. You know, the one with the child tax credit is this kind of sweeping um, adjustment and something that, as as we've talked about since you formerly worked on, on economic policy, is something that is at the root of so many other societal issues, like you mentioned, education, hunger. Um, and then, you know, how you have the Law Enforcement De-Escalation Training Act, which is really targeted and is really specific um, and certainly is only addressing kind of one problem in a lot of problems that we have seen over the last years with our current policing structures. However, um, it's something that has uh, a a possibility of, of passing and would have tangible impacts mm -hmm. um, if if passed. And both of these things, I think it's worth mentioning, are things that we work on in coalition with other faith-based partners, not just Catholics, but Christians, Jewish yeah. folks, all sorts of people. Um, 
And so I think there's there's a real opportunity for movement on both of those things, both on on sweeping reform and on, you know, kind of really targeted um, incremental reform. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. I, I, I wouldn't want to suggest that that this bill or really any one piece of legislation passed is a is a panacea is going to to solve a problem. Uh, you know, social 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 issues, social, social concerns are complicated and they are multifaceted and there, there is no single magic wand response. Um, So you're right. It's going to take continuous effort. It's going to take understanding where you can go and make progress and then move on and make, make progress uh, someplace else. The other, the other point that, that I thought of in, in, in listening to you is that there, there is a, there is an interrelatedness to them. Um, if you're getting, uh, if you're getting families with young children, child tax credits and reducing th- that poverty in a community, um, that's also going to lead to, to reduce the need for law enforcement years down the road immediately but also years down the road and again like when you when you don't have enough to eat uh when you don't have a secure place to sleep as a kid you know those are there's going to be mental and emotional and behavioral challenges that 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 crop up in in, in the lives of those children and that's how and they're and they're manifest later um in in emotional and behavioral issues and substance abuse issues so um making sure that that families are are secure and that kids are are fed and they're housed and they have the opportunity to thrive will will lead to to better uh to, to better law enforcement outcomes in the future. Yeah, and I think you bring up an Im- important point about like the consistency of, you know, advocacy and of work on some of these these policies. Um, because my dad, he'll, he'll be like, when I was growing up, when I was your age, you know, the issues were the economy, immigration, and taxes, you know, um, and he'll be like, what are the big issues today? Economy, immigration, and taxes, um, you know, which I think is, it's a little bit reductive, but he's not, he's not totally wrong, right? That like a lot of issues continue. But I think the, the flip side to that point is that like, actually, there have been lots of policy changes, both you know, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse over the last um, 40 years. Um, and behind the scenes of that work are, you know, uh, people in in the congressional side of things, but also advocates and, you know, citizens on, on our side of things who are pushing for those changes. And also, you know, even researchers who are saying this is how this policy has impacted a community. Um, and so I think it's important to to think about that consistency. Um, and I think to that point, you know, uh, I'm curious for your take on this. You know, what is the importance or the impact of consistently engaging with a Congress um, or congressional representatives, even when you disagree with them, when their policy stances are, for example, so different from what our our policy stances on a certain issue might be, whether that's migration or, or economic justice, what's what's the benefit of having those conversations with people you disagree with? Um, that's really it's really important. Um, but first, I want to go back to something. Uh, that you made me think of years ago when Laudato Si first came out. 
I did a couple of presentations. And as I read through the document, it dawned on me that uh, Francis makes the point 11 or 12 different times, everything is interrelated. Everyone is interconnected. He, he just keeps coming back to it. And that's true all the way down to the community level. You can't, we tend to to silo or to stovepipe policy making and policy thinking. Um, but economic policy is immigration policy, is tax policy. They're all intimately intertwined. And you can't, you can't make a policy without creating knock-on effects in other aspects of, of the economy. So it really is important to, to think of them as all integrated and all interconnected. Um, but back to your point about the difficulty in um, in having difficult conversations, because it's really it's not easy, right? Like we, we like you said, we shy away from them. Um, when you're you know when you're dating, what do they tell you? Don't don't talk about religion or politics. <laughs> and yet we yet we live and work at the intersection of both, right? <laughs> um, um, you know, when you go to Thanksgiving dinner, you're just talking about family. Don't don't bring politics into it. Um, but so so we tend to to try to avoid difficult conversations. But that's how we change minds, and that's how we change hearts um, by entering into genuine, right, authentic Christian conversation with others with whom we might disagree, and and maybe that's where. The challenge lies is that we're supposed to, setting aside the policy questions, what we're talking about, at our best, we're bringing in to these conversations Christian ideals about relating to the human person, relating to each other, communicating with each other that aren't necessarily, that are always reflected in the broader conversation, right? You can, it's chaotic, it seems zero sum, and uh, bare knuckled, and so that there's that there's that level of discomfort too. Is how am I supposed to bring Catholic Christian values about honoring <laughs> honoring people with whom I disagree? Where it just doesn't seem that like that civility seems to be lacking in so uh, in so many conversation public conversations, but. My argument is, like, I think we would argue is that that's what makes it so important. That's what it makes it important to to bring in our perspective and in, into the into a debate. Um, is at our best, we can bring in um, a civility and a and a tenor that that can help deescalate. To to use to use that word again, the 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 conversations um, in the political sphere. Um. I, I think we can all point to examples of family members of friends who, um, with whom we disagree deeply, right? Uh, yet, yet we love them and, and we try to have conversations with them. And, and so that's what, that's what keeps me going is we, we have to continue to try to, to assume, assume the best of intentions with others and, and assume that I, you know, I have experiences and, perspectives that others that others may not have and I can share those with them and and we can learn from each other. Yeah, and I th I think it's really easy in our you know kind of 
social current events media age um to uh write to write people off um and to get really frustrated and i know especially in my age group there's a lot of that and i'm definitely you know guilty of it sometimes i have to step away and say like i'm not i can't listen to this perspective right now because it's just mm. <laughs> it's hurtful um but I also think of, um, and I hope my mom is okay with me using her example, but I also think of my mom, um, who for most of her life was very much um, right of center. And this is not to make this kind of a, a political party thing. Um, but I, I think over the last few years, her having conversations with myself and and my siblings um, has really helped her to think about different perspectives that she was never really um, exposed to growing up, you know, like she, she grew up um, in an Irish Catholic white suburb of, of Philadelphia. And so that meant something kind of really specific about her outlook on the world. Um, but I think the combination of current events um, and like being able to kind of consistently have those conversa conversations has kind of really changed her opinions on some things, particularly, mm -hmm. you know, social policies. Um, and that took years, right? Like that, that was a very long progression for her. And that required my siblings and I to have those conversations. It's something helpful to keep in mind that um, not only does my faith call me to do, you know, this kind of um, advocacy and justice work in a federal context, but I think it, it's also important to think about in, you know, in a more interpersonal context. And I think there, there are times in advocacy where those things meet, where you have to have conversations with people that you don't agree with. You know, I'm, I'm really glad that you, that you brought up this, this point. Um, and it's thorny. I have, I have really stepped on my fair share of rakes um, <laughs> over the years uh, doing this work. Um, but I, th I think that's important, too, is to be an advocate in private, you know, with with our families and with our loved ones. One of the most uh, influential, unfortunately, one of the most unfortunate yet influential events of my Jesuit volunteer year uh, was when it was at the border. Um, uh, I was the the program manager at the Sherman Heights Community Center, as I mentioned. Uh, yeah. uh, part of that was driving around a converted Holiday Inn uh, shuttle bus um, to 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 pick up the to, to pick up some of the senior citizens that lack transportation and get them to the center. Uh, it was uh, it was it was the joke because you listeners can't see me, but I am a, a big white guy, um, but I do speak Spanish, and so I would affectionately call this thing the the gringo, the green go, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I would drive this thing around and, and pick up senior citizens. And then one day I took my colleagues down towards the end of my Jesuit volunteer year. We packed us, we, we packed it up with the community center employees and we, and I drove it down to, um, to Ensenada and we had lunch. The only time I ever got stopped is when I had, uh, is when I had a, a van full, a shuttle full of my of my colleagues, my my brown colleagues, um, and what's this? What's this big white guy doing driving around this 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 shuttle? Um, and it and it really, I just I felt terrible. I felt terrible, and 
and that was only that was only one experience, right? There were other experiences that of working with kids at the community center, and they would very matter of factly tell me that their their dad got picked up, right? And um, I, I can't, I, I I obviously can't like understand the 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 trauma or the anger or or, or, or everything that represents being um a member of a um marginalized community a community of color um but what i can do hopefully is try to bring that perspective into conversations with my my family members and friends who haven't had those experiences and 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 be sort of a voice an advocate like you said so much more eloquently than, than I am, um, be an advocate of those of those communities in in smaller, uh, more discreet, uh, but maybe even more meaningful ways in, in a certain extent. I want to talk about, uh, I think, the elephant in the room, uh, which are the midterms. You know, this podcast is going to come out um, the week, essentially, before um, the midterm elections next Tuesday. Um, and so I want to start off just with, like, a vibe check, you know? <laughs> how, how are we feeling about <laughs> the midterms? Um, and what are, what are your thoughts, particularly for us, you know, about how um, the midterms might impact um, some of the policies that we're thinking about, um, you know, you mentioned kind of like the end of year crush, um, before like those newly elected members kind of transition over. Um, but what do, what do midterms mean for, for us? I am, uh, I'm not a millennial, so I don't, <laughs> so I don't know. What That's vibe. right. You're a proud Gen Xer. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to vibe check. Um, <laughs> so the midterms, I, I also, the, the midterms won't change what we're saying and what we're supporting and what we're fighting for and who we're fighting for, but it might change how we're, how we're saying that. Um, and strategically where we go about saying those things. Um, you know, midterm elections have consequences and sometimes it makes it easier to legislate certain issues and more difficult to legislate others and vice versa, depending on the way things, depending on the things, way things shake out. Um, I hung up my prognostication cap uh, a long time ago when I realized how bad I was at it. <laughs> um, but we're going to be prepared. So we're going to be prepared to, to continue to bring the message to, to all members of Congress and to try to 
have those difficult yet important conversations with anybody. Um, now, again, is that you know, is it going to is it going to make certain policy making more difficult, but other policy making easier? Yeah, probably. You know, there are some things that are where it's easier to make progress on on a bipartisan basis than than, than other issues. Um, but that type of sometimes that type of dynamic can create opportunities for really uh, really interesting conversations where people sit together and they find some mutual shared interest and they can, and they work together. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. I, you know, when I, when I, um, when I, you know, when I, uh, when I, it's easy to despair sometimes when you hear the, when you listen to the commercials and you, there's, they can be so, to borrow your word from earlier, reductive and misleading and disingenuous and mean-spirited. Um, but the the hope comes in that that's only, that all of that, most of it, stops at election day, right? And then and once they actually have to get to legislating, when they have to look at each other across a chamber or sit with each other on a dais uh, in a committee room um they can't the you know the, the 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 conversations become just a little a little more civil and there's more fact-based uh so we, we try not to let the the tenor uh of of election season sort of like win the day for the rest of the year because it's important you know like it is just an, it is election day it's an election season and then it culminates in election day but after that, they actually have to legislate and they have to administer the government. And um, that's that's a totally different thing. Although elections and campaigns are totally different from actually doing the work. Going back to our <clears throat> this, that, that idea earlier that policymaking sort of surrounds us. We don't see most of it um, because it's invisible. Um, but policymaking is all around us. It's on the clothes that we wear, it's in the food that we buy, the, 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 the homes that we, that, that we live in. Um, so, but if you, if you disengage, if the, if the, if the, if the unintended consequence of all the chaos and all of the, 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 the cacophony of an election season is to disengage, then the tendency is to disengage from everything henceforth, right? So you're not only are you not voting, you're not participating in election day, but you're also not recognize, not want, not likely to engage in policymaking in the political process uh, uh, throughout the year. Um, and so it has this knock-on effect where you have this cycle of, oh, this doesn't mean anything, I'm checking out, and then you're disengaged, rinse, repeat. Um, so we have to remain engaged, um, not only at election day, but all, all throughout the year. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think that brings us back to our faith basis too, um, you know, and like, what does it mean to be a faithful citizen? Or, you know, as, as um, Pope Francis says, you know, good Catholics meddle in politics, right? Um, so what yeah. does... 
what do, what is that relationship between faith and civic engagement um, beyond election day? What does that what, what does that look like? Yeah, I've been thinking about this uh, because um, you know part of part of what animates me to do this work is the the commitment to the common good, right? It's like Catholics and our faith calls us to promote the common good in everything that we do. Uh, and, you know, we, we understand that when we're talking about the common good, it's not just about ourselves, right? Like it, it's not enough for me to make sure that I have access to safe housing. I can find decent work. I have enough to eat. Um, I have to, the, the common good is making sure that everybody has all of those things. Right. And, and making sure that that as many of my brothers and sisters uh, can access those things as well. But up to, you know, up to very recently, I've always considered my commitment to participation in public life, in civic life, to be a very personal thing. Like I'm satisfying my call to participation when I vote. And th those those are inconsistent beliefs, right? Like if I'm going to be a, a, a faithful Catholic, I should be ensuring that everybody can participate in public life. It's not just good enough that I go to vote and that I get to bring my concerns to elected officials, but I want to make sure that everybody has that right and that ability, that ev that that the ability of all of us to to vote and to get to Congress and to talk to Congress, all of us should have that. And so I'm th I've been thinking about that more. Like we, I need to start. I need to reframe my understanding of the Catholic call to participation and the right to participate in public life as more. Uh, more in lines with a commitment to the common good that everybody, I should be fighting for everybody's right. Just like I fight for everybody's right to secure affordable housing or income security. Um, I need to be making sure that all, everybody um, can participate in the voting process, um, can bring their, bring their concerns to, to members of Congress. Yeah. I think that's an interesting perspective in terms of, thinking about voting very communally and almost as as like sacred right because like it's it can feel very isolating literally isolating that you know if you're in person you're in a mm. booth like i i voted um uh dc has you know kind of an absentee ballot program um so i just like <laughs> voted on my couch the other night you know um and it was just me by myself and I think disenfranchisement is also a huge issue in our country, particularly for some of these, um, you know, underserved communities that that we're talking about um, for for migrant communities who might have different um, citizenship statuses and how that impacts voting or for people um, who are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated, how that impacts their voting status. Um, and so I think those things are always important to have in mind, as well as that kind of communal responsibility to like, who are you bringing into the voting booth with you? Or yeah, it's an act of solidarity, right? If if I'm gonna, uh, well, especially as it relates to policy, like if I'm gonna support a policy or vote on something, you know, like vote on a ballot measure that 
could possibly never affect me, um, but it's really important for some other folks, um, then that's an act of solidarity too. You know, dis, you know, enfranchising people who who have had their voting rights taken away as a result of a criminal record. I, I don't. <laughs> up to this point, that that type of policy doesn't affect me. But that's a really important policy for those those brothers and sisters of mine who do have criminal convictions and who are trying to restore their lives, their families' lives. Um, and so it's something that's worthy of support as an act of solidarity, as an act of justice, um, as an act of equity. You know, and another idea that I keep coming back to uh, is um, in, in Caritas and Veritate, Pope Emeritus Benedict the Sixteenth. It it's actually a great encyclical. Um, he, he talks about uh, economic activity, and he's very clear, and he says, um, justice must be applied to every economic activity um, because it's always concerned. Economic activity is always concerned with people and their needs. And then he goes on to say that every economic decision has a moral consequence, which is a pretty, you know, when you think about it, every, every decision, he doesn't say many economic decisions have moral consequences. Every economic decision has a moral consequence. And I think that's a, that's a good guidepost for this type of advocacy too, is if Congress, if policymakers are going to very regularly be making decisions that affect the economy, then it's incumbent upon us to try to make sure they're making the moral decision. Because um, you can't do that after the fact. After the fact, it's too late. Once that law has been passed and it's being implemented, um, you, you can't, you know, going back and changing it is, is quite a chore. Um, and so making sure that they understand the moral consequences of the decisions that they are making when they're making them is, is, really, is really important. And, you know, that's Congress, but it's also city council. You know, it's the president of the United States, but it's also the mayor. It's also the, the county commissioner. Um, all, of, all of the decisions that are made um, at every level um, have, have moral consequences, can, can affirm human life, and can build economic opportunity. And, and we should help them make those, those moral, ethical, just, equitable decisions. Well, thanks so much, Tom. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for listening. We hope that if you're eligible, you cast your ballot for U.S. midterm elections. And if you want to stay updated on our advocacy work, go to jesuits.org advocate. Thanks. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. This episode was edited and produced by me, Megan Leipsch. Our communications team is Mike Jordan-Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Becky Sindelar, and Kristen Smith. Original theme music created by Kevin Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at Jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit Justice, 
on Instagram at wearethejesuits and at facebook.com Jesuits. If you're interested in discerning a vocation with the Jesuits, visit beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. And subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks.